and welcome to the Dogwood Podcast. My name is Sophie Harrison, Dogwood's Pipeline and Tankers campaigner. I'm taking over for your regular host, Kaina Gatta, for this special episode of our podcast. Today, we will be focusing entirely on busting the most persistent myths and misinformation about the proposed Kinder Morgan Pipeline and Tanker project. So folks, here's how it's going to work. We've put together a list of the top 10 Kinder Morgan myths the Dogwood team has been hearing out there, whether it's online, from neighbors when you're out canvassing, or from that pro-pipeline uncle at your family dinner. We've brought on some wicked smart guests to help us work through this list. We've got the former president and CEO of ICBC, a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, a law prof at UBC, and of course, your friends from around the Dogwood office. Quick housekeeping note before we dive in. For all of you visual or reading-based learners out there, we've summarized all these myths and ideas from the podcast on the Dogwood website. You can check it out at dogwoodbc.ca slash km-myths. You can follow along there while you're listening to the podcast, or you can check it out afterwards if you want more information or deeper reading on any of the content. But definitely don't worry about taking down notes. Just check it out afterwards at dogwoodbc.ca slash km-myths. So with that, let's get down to it. First up, we have Robin Allen. She's an independent economist, the former president and CEO of ICBC, and my personal pipeline economics hero. She's joining us over the phone from Whistler. Thanks, Sophie, for inviting me. Great. Well, shall we dive into busting some Kinder Morgan myths then? Certainly. Amazing. Okay. Myth number one, Kinder Morgan's expansion will help tar sands, Canada's tar sands, access Asian markets. How would you respond to that? Well... There are no Asian markets for Alberta's crude oil. Uh, the the there certainly is you know there certainly are refineries in Asia that process oil, but they're not accessing it from Canada. Uh, we have experience historically uh, with the lack of our ability to develop markets in Asia. In uh, 2012, the National Energy Board gave Kinder Morgan preferential treatment, unprecedented preferential treatment, by approving uh, their request for guaranteed 79,000 barrels a day of access to the Westridge Dock. Kinder Morgan promised that if that access was granted, markets in Asia would develop. Well, what we find from the statistics from Port Metro Vancouver, and even from the NEB itself, is that those markets have not developed. In 2016, not one tanker went to uh, Asia. All the tankers went to U.S. markets, whether California, Washington, or the Gulf Coast. Um, So this whole idea that somehow uh, urgent need for getting crude oil to Asia will assist our Canadian economy, uh, you know, that notion is false. It's not founded in evidence or statistics. And... um, even should the pipeline be built, the idea that markets in Asia will develop uh, is, is also uh, fraught with error. That's so interesting because we hear all the time that we need to get Canada's oil to Tidewater in order to access these markets. Yes, and we, we often hear Prime Minister Trudeau and Natural Resource Minister Carr, uh, Premier Rachel Notley of Alberta suggest that 
Alberta's crude oil is landlocked and we need tidewater access. Well, tidewater access has existed since 1956. The Westridge dock has been there and it's been capable of loading 10 tankers a month. Well, there have never been in excess of an average of five tankers a month leaving Westridge. And in fact, uh, in 2016, uh, there were only 15 for the full year. So we have, you know, as I said, all those tankers are going to the States, but we have unused capacity uh, at Tidewater. And so if in fact Tidewater access was so necessary, then it would be used. Well, that was myth number one, thoroughly busted. On to our second and related myth. Here it is. Canada is selling its oil to the U.S. at a discount. Well, it, first of all, it depends on what oil you talk about. When we upgrade heavy oil in Alberta, we find that, in fact, Alberta's synthetic crude oil, the light, unconventional oil, actually sells very well compared to WTI and is often at a premium. Quick interjection for our listeners. So this WTI stands for West Texas Intermediate. That's the American benchmark for crude oil. The benchmark for Canada's heavy crude oil is called Western Canada Select, or WCS. So you got WTI from Texas, WCS is Canada's tar sands. Back to Robin now on whether there is a discount for Canada's heavy crude. It is a lower quality oil and it costs more to transport to market. So there's what they call a natural discount. And that natural discount under good market conditions is about $20 a barrel. You would expect the price of WCS to be about $20 a barrel below WTI under good market conditions. And that number comes from the National Energy Board, a report it did a number of years ago. Um, what do we find today? We find, in fact, WCS is selling at $9.40 a barrel less than WTI. So we, in fact, have a very healthy premium price for our heavy oil in North America right now. Where do you think that myth comes from, that Canada's oil is selling at a discount? Oh, it very clearly comes from, uh, back a number of years ago when Northern Gateway was ongoing, a, an analyst at CIBC made a quick comment that we were selling at a discount to um, uh, oil in the States, and that that discount was somehow so high that it was costing us $50 million a day. So what I did is I wrote a report. It's available on my, my um, blog, robinallen.com. And that report looked at where that number came from. And I contacted the analyst, and he had no analysis or details. He mentioned that number to a reporter, taking the price of oil for one day, one day where there was uh, a relatively high discount for one day, and extrapolated that as if it was the truth about pricing of oil. The next day, the difference between that heavy oil and WTI was only a dollar. Wow. So, so you can see what a difference a day makes. All of a sudden, we have this mythology that, that many people in Canada uh, are relying on to suggest that this pipeline will, in fact, have economic benefits when it won't. And so... I then followed it through because uh, Minister Joe Oliver used that number. The, the number came out from a, um, uh, a number of publications funded by the oil sector. 
And uh, Mr. Oliver's office did not check the number either. Um, th th he just repeated it. And then when the um, Chamber of Commerce came out with their $50 million a day during the Trans Mountain Review, uh, I contacted them as well. They did not check the number either. And uh, <laughs> wow. so lo and behold, we have this, this statement masquerading as, as evidence uh, when in fact there is not a discount uh, right now that is, that is undesirable. There will always be a discount and it's going to be about $20 a barrel. And building a pipeline uh, through British Columbia will not narrow that discount. Wow. So it really is just an example of industry lobbyists and politicians cherry picking uh, one piece of data, one number. Yeah, it's propaganda because because they know full well there's no analysis and they keep repeating it as if it exists. It's being used for general consumption because it's promoting a, a pipeline that's not needed or wanted and trying to convince the public that it's that it's that it should be. And and so it really is propaganda. Speaking of, shall we talk about oil by rail? Sure, let's talk about oil by rail. All right, so he here's the myth that we hear time and time again. If we don't build Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, they'll ship all this oil by rail instead. Help us break it down. Well, that's ridiculous. We do not have the capacity to load crude oil from rail facilities onto tankers on the West Coast. We do not have that capacity of what Trans Mountain tells us they're going to be shipping is, is uh, you know, 540,000 barrels a day of diluted bitumen uh, by tanker. Those facilities don't exist. And the last time I spoke to the railway companies, they have no plans to build that capacity on the West Coast. So, so it's not coming this way by rail at all. Right. So as is, no one is actually proposing rail to oil tanker shipment expansion. No one, no one is, and they won't. And, uh, and, and just, so, so it's, it's a non sequitur to suggest there's any relationship between crude oil by rail and this pipeline. That was Robin Allen helping us break down three of the most persistent economic myths about Kinder Morgan perpetuated by the oil lobby, breaking down these mystical Asian markets, that price discount lie, and oil by rail fear mongering. Next up, I'm heading over to the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, their office in downtown Vancouver, to chat with Mark Lee. Mark is a senior economist at the CCPA BC office, as well as the director of their Climate Justice Project. So here's the fourth myth of our podcast that I'm going to be asking for Mark's help with. The oil sands are pipeline constrained. They need Kinder Morgan's capacity you have to look at what other pipelines have been improved in terms of additional capacity. So the oil industry in Alberta has long wanted Keystone XL as their main way of getting their oil to the refining capacity in the United States that they need. Um, so that's now on uh, Enbridge's line three. So there's other developments. And if you look at all of that, and if you also think about things like uh, Alberta's uh, emissions cap and what that means for future production, uh, there's a strong case to be made that we don't need the Kinder Morgan pipeline pipeline uh, at all. So uh, a, a geoscientist that we work with, uh, David Hughes, uh, looked at this in terms of all of the 
production numbers and, and what's anticipated. Uh, and you know, unless there is a, a really major return to high prices of oil, like there was uh, three years ago, which most in the industry don't think is going to happen, uh, then essentially we don't need the the Kinder Morgan pipeline. And particularly with regard to the uh, the cap that is Alberta has ostensibly posed on future um, tar sands growth. Right. So with oil prices under $50 a barrel, analysts talking about a pipeline overbuild, not looking like they really need the Trans Mountain expansion after all. Thanks, Mark. On to our next myth that I'm going to ask for your help with. Here it is. BC needs the jobs and revenue from Kinder Morgan's expansion project. Well, uh, there would certainly be some increase in jobs if the Kinder Morgan pipeline goes ahead. Um, you're probably looking at about 2,500 jobs uh, for two years on average during the pipeline construction phase. Uh, and then once it's built, uh, Kinder Morgan's own estimates in its filings to the National Energy Board are that the pipeline would only create uh, 90 new jobs, uh, 40 in Alberta and 50 in British Columbia. So the whole existing uh, operation uh, only employs about 100 in BC and 100 in Alberta. So there, there are jobs, and they're probably very well-paying jobs, but uh, a lot of the numbers in the public debate have been grossly exaggerated by governments and the company who are seeking to get the, the pipeline approved. So they... Uh, they pay consultants to use these uh, models that are based on a lot of dubious assumptions, and uh, at every uh, twist and turn along the way, they exaggerate the numbers. So they say, oh, well, it's going to create you know, uh, 12,000 jobs during construction and uh, 7,000 jobs once it's built. But uh, you know, if you actually look at Kinder Morgan's own uh, filings, um, the numbers are substantially less. Uh, in terms of revenue, I mean, there's, there's, th there may be some uh, economic benefit associated uh, with all of that, but it, there's also uh, a lot of risk associated with it as well. If there are pipeline spills at land or at sea, the damages associated with that are huge. Uh, if there's incremental production from Alberta that's going through that pipeline, uh, that's a whole lot of additional carbon that goes into the atmosphere, and there are damages, potentially billions of dollars that's of damages too. associated with that. And potential impacts, even if everything goes ahead uh, as normal, all of those extra tankers uh, going through the, the strait are going to have an impact on existing economic activity uh, as well. So uh, a lot of the studies that are you know, put forward in support of this are kind of cheerleading exercise. They only look at uh, the benefits. They don't look at the costs. And when they look at the benefits, they grossly exaggerate them. Shockingly, the company or industry that stands the most to profit from this proposal isn't fully honest in their analysis. Thanks, Mark. Powering along to our next myth. Justin Trudeau tells us that all these newly approved pipelines are part of Canada's climate plan. And even, here's my favorite part of that, that we need to build new pipelines so that we can fund the clean energy transition in Canada. What would you say to that? Well, I think Canada is trying to have it uh, both ways. Um, it's trying to make itself look like a, a leader on climate change by, you know, going to Paris and uh, talking about, um, you know, signing onto the Paris Agreement and, and bringing together provinces towards a, a new Canadian strategy. Uh, but when you actually look at what they're doing in terms of action, uh, it turns out uh, very little. And you know, increasing Canada's pipeline capacity to get more uh, oil sands out of the ground and into the atmosphere uh, is clearly a contradiction of the, the spirit and arguably the letter of the Paris Agreement. If you think about what uh, a reasonable carbon budget for the world uh, going forward is and what Canada's likely share, even as an exporter of that, is going to be, uh, it means a lot of that oil just has to stay in the ground. 
That was Mark Lee, senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, busting three more Kinder Morgan myths. Whether the oil industry really needs the pipeline capacity in the first place. How all these jobs and economic benefit arguments are overblown. And last, but certainly not least, how Trudeau's political spin aside, New Tarsen's pipelines aren't actually consistent with Canada's climate change promises. Thank you, Mark. I am joined right now by Professor Jocelyn Stacey. She's a professor of environmental and administrative law at the University of British Columbia. Thanks so much, Professor Stacey, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Um, so the first myth, Professor Stacey, I'm going to ask for your help with is this. We're hearing it a lot recently with the new government, and that is that the province of BC has no power to stop the Kinder Morgan Pipeline and Tanker Project. How would you respond to that? Right. So I think it's important to note that the province is constrained in the action that it can take with respect to the pipeline because the pipeline is uh, undoubtedly a federal undertaking. So that's something that falls within federal jurisdiction uh, under the Canadian Constitution um, that the federal government has exclusive jurisdiction over. So what that means in terms of the bottom line is that the province can't uh, for example, issue an order that prohibits the pipeline from uh, the pipeline expansion from ha- happening in British Columbia, that would be constitutionally invalid. So I think it's be ca- important to be careful with the language that we're using because what the province can do is that it can take action to protect things within its own provincial jurisdiction. So protect things like the environment, health and safety of residents um, that would be uh, affected by potentially harmful Um, effects of development projects. But maybe I can come back to that because I think there's actually a more compelling legal argument that lies not with the province, but with uh, Indigenous communities that are affected by the pipeline. Right. And you wrote a great op-ed in the Globe and Mail about that. Tell us a bit more about where you think provincial pipeline power really lies. Yeah, so I think the power, uh, in, in terms of the sort of legal power, uh, it lies with Indigenous communities. And that is a result of Section 35 of our Constitution, which recognizes and affirms existing Aboriginal and treaty rights. Um, so the one of the ways in which this, uh, one of the sets of obligations that this provision of the Constitution imposes on uh, our governments is that when those rights are likely to be adversely affected by state action, Um, the Crown has a constitutional obligation to consult and accommodate with um, First Nations people or Indigenous Canadians. So there are, as people may know, there are a number of cases right now that are currently being litigated before the courts. Most of those are um, at the Federal Court of Appeal um, in response to the federal approval of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and we'll wait to see how that plays out. So those are allegations that that the federal government did not adequately consult with affected Um, Indigenous communities. Um, But there's also this, and this is what I I wrote the op-ed about, there's also uh, a challenge against the provincial government for the provincial environmental assessment certificate that was issued after the province uh, changed its position on the pipeline. So you'll recall that for a long time the province opposed uh, the pipeline before the NEB, when the NEB assessment was happening. And then later on, it changed its position to be supportive of the pipeline and eventually issued an environmental assessment certificate. So the Squamish Nation has challenged that uh, that decision to change the position, to, to, to change position and issue the environmental assessment certificate 
and is arguing before the BC Supreme Court that the province didn't adequately and consult adequately consult and accommodate with the Squamish Nation when it made that that change in its position. Right. So the point that I wanted to make was that one thing that the province can do, because I think that that's a very reasonable legal argument. I think that there's there's a very good chance the Squamish could win. And so one thing the province could do now that we have a new government is take a look at that case and decide not to defend itself in that litigation. So the outcome of that, where the province to take that position, the outcome of that would be that it would be required to go back to the table with the Squamish Nation and go back to consulting and accommodating with the Squamish people before it can validly issue the provincial environmental assessment certificate. Another question I had for you, we started to see increasingly since the new BC government has committed to use whatever tools at their disposal to stop this project, this concern about the rule of law. So you're seeing op-eds saying if they kill Trans Mountain, it will mean that Canada's rule of law is broken. What do you have to say about that as a lawyer? So that's a difficult proposition to respond to because they're for a couple of reasons. So one is that there's a lot of, we're yet to see how this is going to play out, right? So there are lots of different scenarios that could arise where the Trans Mountain expansion doesn't happen, right? And so the effect that that would have on our perception of our constitutional system or the rule of law is different depending on how this plays out, right? And the second is that people mean different things when they talk about the rule of law. So I'll start with one point. So the first point is that there are things that the province can do in order to protect provincial interests, right? Areas of provincial jurisdiction or shared jurisdiction between the province and the federal government. So things like the environment and health and safety. And we can expect that the province will start to take actions to ensure that there are appropriate processes in place so that when major development happens, that those interests are protected. Where we get into a bit of uncertainty or sort of things get a little bit muddy is when the outcome of those processes. So if, for example, there was a new health assessment that was required for major development, which is something I've seen proposed online, is if the outcome of that project is going to is to impose direct requirements on Kinder Morgan or the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And if that were to happen, we would expect litigation around that. And the courts will have to resolve that, right? Because there are conflicting interests at stake there. We've got federal jurisdiction over federal undertaking and we've got provincial jurisdiction over the health of its residents. And the court will have to resolve that as it does in any constitutional challenge. So that to me doesn't strike me as undermining the rule of law at all. That's how our federal system is designed to work. And similarly with any constitutional challenges with respect to the duty to consult, right? This is the way that our system works, right? We're trying to accommodate First Nations rights and ensure that those are respected in a way that sort of fits within our constitutional system. So that's just the way that our system is designed to work at the moment. The second point that I would make is that I've argued that the federal process for approving the pipeline, so if we think back to the flawed NEB process and then the sort of ministerial panel that was 
um, put in place afterwards, that those processes themselves the, themselves have actually um, violated the rule of law. And so, uh, so I think this argument kind of works both ways. The myth that you're proposing that if the if Trans Mountain pipeline uh, is stopped, that Canada's rule of law is broken. Well, I've argued that in the environmental context, it's already broken, uh, and that's because. Um, the way I understand it, the rule of law requires the state to meet certain basic standards of due process, and these were not met in the instance of uh, approving the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So I think, I'm just trying to think through um, what a pipeline proponent might say or what a pipeline proponent is thinking when they would claim that if the Trans Mountain Pipeline is stopped, that Canada's rule of law is broken. And I suspect that it has something to do with certainty, right? That companies are entitled to entitled to rely on permits once they're granted. And in this case, you know, Trans Mountain has received federal and provincial permits. Um, and so it would have something to do with this idea that the rule of law is there to give us certainty about our actions. Um, and I guess the response to that is that our, the reality that we live in is that we live in a federal state and we live in a colonial state. And so there's inevitably going to be some uncertainty about major controversial projects like this to ensure that um, interests are protected, right? Um, interests under uh, what, when you have interests that are colliding between uh, different provinces, different First Nations, um, that there's going to be un some uncertainty as we work through those difficult issues. And one of the things that is very clear now that we're in this um, state of uncertainty about the Trans Mountain Pipeline's future is that there is a lot more that could have been done up front um, by the federal government, by the provincial government, to ensure that um, these requirements of due process were met right. up front, right, to ensure that affected communities were meaningfully consulted and had input into the process and had more confidence into the process. Uh, and we're just now, you know, experiencing what happens when when those processes aren't in place. Certainly an exciting time in this province. <laughs> it really is. Well, I'll just say from a legal perspective, this is very interesting to see how this will play out because we haven't had um, major sort of national infrastructure uh, um, examples like this in a very long time. And I think the social context and the political context um, for these projects has changed significantly since uh, these legal issues have arisen in the past. So it's going to be very interesting to see how, how the courts and how our governments deal with this challenging situation. Right. And those all, yeah, as you said, all those overlapping jurisdictions, the federal government over interprovincial pipelines, the provincial government over health and safety, First Nations over their rights and title, definitely going to be some interesting legal showdowns ongoing in the many years to come. That was Jocelyn Stacey, Professor of Environmental and Administrative Law at the University of British Columbia, on provincial pipeline power and the rule of law. Turns out, neither are quite as cut and dry as the likes of Gwyn Morgan wants to make them seem. We're now eight myths into our podcast. We've already heard Professor Stacey hint at myth number nine, talking about how the rule of law might already be broken in the case of the Trans Mountain Review. I'm going to bring it back to Robin Allen to break this next myth down even further. Now, we Kinder Morgan opponents have heard it all the time, time and time again since this winter. Here it is. This project has already been approved based on a rigorous evidence-based review. 
the Trans Mountain Expansion Review was not rigorous. It was not based on evidence. And the National Energy Board deliberately structured the scope of the review uh, in order to recommend approval for the project. So we heard, I mean, and that's not just me saying that. Let's, let's go back. Let's go back to when uh, Justin Trudeau was uh, campaigning to become prime minister. And indeed, kind of got, got it on video. Uh, prime Minister Trudeau knew that this process was not trustworthy, that it was not based on rigor or science, and promised that because of that, the review would be redone and that the report coming out of the review would not be relied upon. And many MPs, uh, certainly Mr. Wilkinson and, and um, Mr. Beach, confirmed that after the election that the process would be redone. Uh, even two committees that were set up, the ministerial panel and the recent NEB review board uh, panel, came to the same conclusions, that the NEB can't be trusted, uh, it suffers from regulatory capture. And even with all this, the Prime Minister broke his promise. And again, we're dealing here with a problem with propaganda, and that's the same sentences keep being repeated and repeated, that somehow this was a rigorous science-based review, and we hear Minister Carr say it as well, Premier Notley, somehow this was, and therefore the decision is valid. Well, without a proper review, without due diligence, the project cannot and should not be approved because we don't know the implications of the decision that's being made. Canadians deserve good information upon which to make informed decisions. That, uh, that is a, a, we deserve that, and that is not happening in this case. And so it's, it's, it's kind of um, disappointing, for example, that when we have a new government in British Columbia that has done its due diligence, uh, understands that this project is not in the interests of British Columbians or Canadians, that somehow they have to defend their position when in fact it should be the federal government defending its position as to why it broke its promise. It has never explained why that promise was broken. For our 10th and final myth, I'm going to bring in my friend and teammate, Christina Smethurst from the Dogwood Victoria office. Hey, Christina. Hey, how's it going? Great. How are you doing? I'm so good. Cool. So let's dive right in. As a communications coordinator, you interact regularly with all sorts of folks on the internet. So I know you've heard this argument before. We love to hear. But you drive a car. How can you oppose Kinder Morgan's pipeline expansion? You must be a total hypocrite. Oh, I love this one. Right? <laughs> yes. I love to bust this myth. So um, it's interesting because it's like... Uh, if I drink alcohol, then I couldn't possibly fight liver cancer because I drink alcohol, right? Um, I drive a car. I, I, I do. I will say it, and I am not afraid to say it. Um, I live in a world that was not designed by me, but I'm trying to design a world for the future, and that is a world without cars that emit carbon, <laughs> if you will. So I, you know, I, I'm getting by um, doing the things that I are, that I feel are important. Um, my work at Dogwood, I feel like is really important and like all our work together and all the organizers and the volunteers and the donors, um, we're working on a larger purpose. And in the meantime, I got to drive a car sometimes and it sucks, but I know that I'm working towards a future where that's not going to be a thing. And I hope my son doesn't drive a car. All right, folks, that's all the time we have for today. That was your 10th Kinder Morgan myth. 10 myths busted in, ooh, under 40 minutes? 
Thank you so much for tuning in. I am happy if you had even a fraction as much fun listening to this podcast as I very nerdily did making it. I hope you feel a little more confident to take on those tough conversations out canvassing or with your family and friends. Um, I also know it's been a lot of information that we've thrown at you. I know that I've been learning too. So reminder, you can find it all on our website at dogwoodbc.ca slash km dash myths. Maybe share this podcast with your friends and family too if you liked it. Last but not least, I want to say we want to hear your feedback from this episode. Do you have questions or other points on the myths that we did tackle? Even better, do you have other myths you think should have made our top 10 list? Send them our way, please. You can tweet them at us at dogwoodbc or leave us a comment at that website, dogwoodbc.ca slash cam dash myths. You never know, maybe if we get enough sweet myths from our listeners, we'll be able to put on a mini episode soon busting some bonus Kinder Morgan myths. That's all for today, folks. Don't let that oil industry spin get you down, my friends. We got this. 